Lord God, we come here today to enter into community, but we also come here to, to explore the truth, sometimes to be confronted with the truth. Lord, we come here to express our faith to you, but many times we're hindered. There are barriers to expressing our hearts to you, Father. Some of those barriers are things that we've done ourselves, that we've placed up in our lives. Others have found their way, wormed their way into our lives. But God, we also come here today to experience you, to encounter you. And so, Father, I pray in these next few moments, Lord, that we would encounter you as the liberator, the one who gives true freedom, sets us free, and that we'd know you as Lord, Lord over every power, even powers that seem overwhelming to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who rules? That's the question we've been asking. Who rules? Around 700 AD, Christ followers in the West proclaimed these words. And they would say them often. They would say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified and dead and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting Amen. And I believe what I believe is makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. I did not make it. No, it is making me. Is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. And before 700 AD, you know how they summed all that up? They summed it up in just three words. Jesus is Lord. That's how they said it. There are several things that identify an authentic group of Christ followers that have gathered together. One thing, the big thing, is that they're centered on Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the epicenter of of our faith. Jesus. Jesus is Lord. The second thing is a covenanted community. A covenanted community. It's not just people hanging out together, but people having a distinctive bond, an obligation to one another because of their bond to Jesus as Lord. And when people are centered in Jesus in this covenanted community, there are certain actions that result and certain things that happen. Well, there's a true encounter with God and Jesus. It, it happens like this. There's worship. There's worship that occurs. Offering our lives back to God. That is worship. There's discipleship. There's following Jesus and becoming more like Him. The making of disciples. And then the, there's the mission that happens. And the mission is extending the redemptive purposes of God through the activities of His people. All these things 
define an ecclesia or church. And they're all centered on Jesus being Lord. He is the hub of it all. And if he's not in his rightful place on the throne in the center of it all, it all collapses and it distorts into something that isn't really church, that isn't really authentic Christian, authentic Christ followers coming together. One of the key elements that I just mentioned of this church and, and of any church is the worship of Jesus Christ. And I, I just want to take a quick scan, Colossians 1 and 2, in regards to who we worship, and then look into Colossians 3 at how our own desires and appetites rob that worship that belongs to Jesus. I, I know some of the things that we've said in the past two Sundays about Jesus being Lord has really stirred up a lot of things in people. And, and so because of that, I, this past week I was just... I was just in, I was in a lot of turmoil just with some of the conversations I had with people, emails and things like that. And, and I, I, my, the words that just kept coming back to me said, Lord, this isn't, this isn't about my words and what I'm saying. This is about who you said you were. You said you were Lord. You said that salvation is found in you. You said you're the King of Kings. You said that I am the life. You said I am salvation. And so I, I spent... Some time, and I just, I just wrote up. I went through the Gospels, and I found all the major verses where Jesus speaks in his own words, and he says, this is who I am. I am the bread of life. I am salvation. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the narrow path. I am the way, the truth, the life. And I, and I recorded all those, typed them out, got them here. I got some sitting over there just for you to look at, but we'll get them online for you guys. Because I know some of you really want to look at this. You want to go, what did Jesus say about himself? Not, not what some guy, some church said. But what did Jesus say? So I have those for you, all right? And I really, if, if that, that is troubling you, if it's troubling you, these, these words that Jesus is Lord, if that troubles you, please search out and find out what did Jesus say about himself. doesn't matter whose opinion you've heard on the TV, on the radio, your favorite teacher, your favorite pastor, look at what Jesus said, please. Who is this Jesus that we worship? Who is he? In the first chapter of Colossians, we read how Jesus is the image, he is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. Look at the picture, the portrait that's there in the scriptures and the gospels. He's the, he's the image of the invisible God and how all things and powers were created by Jesus for Jesus. He is Lord of both the living and the dead so that in everything he can have supremacy. He is the Messiah in whom all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. The scriptures say that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus so he could bring back to him, bring people back to him. Jesus is supreme. He is Lord. He is creator. He is over every power and authority. And in him are all the treasures of wisdom. All these things are big, great, and grand. And then we come to the culmination of these glorious riches, the great mystery. 
You know what the great mystery is? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Big and grand just got real small. It sounds like a a quantum physics problem. How does this greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, how does it, how's it, how's it that he dwells within people? It's hard for our minds to comprehend. How could that all, all that greatness be in you and me, and those who believe? Later in chapter 2 in Colossians, the scripture says that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have, you, you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority in you. So what's it like to sense and enjoy the fullness of Christ? You know, I suppose it's like what the psalmist says. Your loving kindness is better than life. Your loving kindness is better than life. Or maybe it's like when, when Peter proclaimed when, on the first sermon on that day in Pentecost. You make me full of gladness with your presence, Lord. Full of gladness because of your presence, David wrote that in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forever. Augustine said that nothing is sweeter than Christ's love and that his happiness was found in Christ alone. Nehemiah said that the joy of the Lord was his strength. Joy, gladness, happiness, and better than life are attempts to describe this fullness that's found in Christ. But do you... Do you spiritually sense the fullness of Christ in you? Do you feel full? Is he really better than life to you? How is it that the head, Jesus, over every power and authority lives within you, and yet you can't resist the comparably insignificant power of a donut? Or the power of that pornographic site. Or the power of that mind-altering substance you keep putting into your body. How come you can't resist the insignificant authority of that person who desires a sexually immoral relationship with you? If the Lord of all lives within you, how is it then that your appetites and desires seem to have more power in your life than he does. Folks, the answers to these questions, it isn't trying a new set of rules or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or human self-help teachings. The answer is in your worship. I'm talking more than singing some songs for 20 minutes on a Sunday. You see, if you pursue happiness of knowing and loving Jesus Christ, you will find that your worship and your holiness grows. But I'm afraid that there are many, there are many who have doubt and unbelief that Jesus will truly bring them happiness. They believe that they're missing some goodness or happiness in life. They don't know how to trust the God they say they worship. As my friend Kelly Press was said, 
They're practical atheists. They say they believe on a Sunday and then the rest of the week just act like he doesn't exist. Colossians 3.5 says to continually put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which amount to idolatry. There's that worship connection. Idolatry is a worship problem. You've heard about the two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said those were the greatest commandments. Jesus said the primary love of our heart is to be centered on God. That's worship. But have you heard about the first and second command? You've heard about the greatest commands, but have you heard the first and second commands? They're intertwined with the greatest commands, if you didn't know. The first and second commands are real simple, but hard commands for us in today's culture. First one is this. You shall have no other gods before me. That's from the mouth of God to Moses. And then God said, the second command, you shall not make for yourself an idol. God himself. The Lord is pretty exclusive. I'm sorry to say that, but he is. Worship is exclusive. He's very inclusive and in wanting all to come to him. But he wants all to worship him. You see, this throne of your heart, it was made for only one. And as a matter of fact, his name is on it. Look, idols and false gods, they just aren't statues and things made out of wood. Idols are the thoughts, the desires, the longings, and expectations that we worship in place of the true God. Idolatry is we, when we run after other desires and other delights rather than Jesus. That's idolatry. Jesus is Lord. Here's how it kind of happens. Just share a, a little, little story, an explanation of maybe how this happens. Because again, I know we're still thinking little stone statues and people in other countries. I knew of this lady, and she believed that the only way for her to be happy was to have a godly husband. And she wanted, you know, she was already married to a Christian man who attended church with her, but she wanted a husband who would pray regularly with her and have devotions with the family. And the thought that was in her head and just seemed to keep going off all the time in her head was, I've got to have a godly husband or I'll die. It ruled her. That thought ruled her. That longing. She sometimes thought if she was extra nice and made him the dinner he liked, he would be obligated to do what she wanted. Other days she would give up in anger and frustration withholding herself from him and pouting. And she was convinced she couldn't find happiness unless her expectations were met. You know what happened? Eventually, she left the church. And the last that was heard of her was that she no longer followed Christ. Her desire ended up destroying her. She left her husband. It's kind of like the account of Rachel in the Bible. Rachel had a sister named Leah. Had a father named Laban. There was a young man named Jacob. Jacob. It was a distant relative, came, fell in love with Rachel. 
And Rachel's life really seemed like a bed of roses. I mean, the Bible says that she was a real knockout. She was a real looker. And she had her sister Leah beat in this area of feminine terms. And uh, she captured the heart of Jacob right away. And Jacob, in fact, he worked for Laban for 14 years to secure that marriage to Rachel. She was beautiful. She had her husband's love. And she enjoyed a superior position to her sister. I mean, what more could Rachel want? But she did want more. She wanted children. It's not a bad desire. But her sister Leah had six sons. And whenever Jacob played with one of those boys, jealousy started to grow. And she felt her, or so she perceived, her favored position was slipping and eroding. She finally cried out to Jacob. And this is recorded in the scripture. It says, give me children. Give me children or else I'll die. Jacob, I mean, he just started pulling his hair out. And he said, am I in the place of God? Rachel had gotten things twisted around in her head. This desire had taken a position of ruling her. Who rules? Around the same time, Jacob decided to move the family away from the in-laws. And Rachel started feeling really insecure. And in her fear, she stole her father's household gods. Little idols, little carved things. Thinking that somehow they could bless her. And maybe she thought that there was a God who ruled over all the earth. Who was almighty. But he was too far away. And he was too unmanageable for her comfort. Now God, he did graciously give her a son. But Rachel wasn't content. And you can tell her heart was revealed by one of her statements afterward. She says, may the Lord give me another son. And even her choice of the name for her firstborn, Joseph, means let God add another. Rachel did conceive again. But you know what happened? She died in childbirth. What she had worshipped and thought would bring her blessing and happiness ended up causing her death. Isn't it ironic that the woman who cried out, give me children or I'll die, ends up dying in childbirth? Rachel couldn't trust God to order the life that she desired. So she instead chose a God that was more tame, more docile, one she could control. She wanted a God she could steal. She wanted a God she could hide. She wanted a God she could keep in her purse. Aren't some of us here doing the same thing? I mean, guys, we want a God... We want a God we can keep in our wallet, keep in our toolbox, so He can fix things for us whenever we want. I imagine that a lot of us have some twisted lies in our head that take the form of idols, twisted desires, maybe desires that were good at one time, but somehow were misshapen into the shape of idols. The idol or God takes the shape in your thoughts like this. In order for me to be truly happy, I must have a good job where I'm respected. In order for me to truly be happy. And I, oh, well paid. Well paid, yes. And in order for me to be truly happy, I must have enough money to live in comfort. 
starts out seeming okay. But it's that in order to be happy thing. It gets us. And that desire starts growing and twisting. In order to be truly happy, I must have a spouse who's godly, romantic, responsible, and a good communicator. In order to be truly happy, I must have children who obey me and please me. Sometimes when a person fashions gods and idols in these shapes, they become even more twisted. And like Rachel, what we think will bring us blessing and happiness ends up destroying ourselves and destroying our relationships. You know, we all have desires, but we have to figure out what is the source of our desire. And whether our desire is idolatrous or if it is a God-given desire, that's all right. The Bible says that each of us comes into this world with an earthly nature that is corrupt. And that our earthly nature has desires that the Scripture describe as lust. Now I know that we may only think of that word in the terms of sexual desire, but the Bible uses this word more broadly. For a simple definition, just substitute, I want it now for lust. Take this verse. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. Now just substitute, I want it now for lust. For all that is in the world... The I want it now of the flesh, the I want it now of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. The world is passing away, and also it's I want it nows. Does that make sense to you? Before Christ comes into our lives, we are, we are essentially slaves to that earthly nature, that I want it now, and its desires. But through Jesus and what he did at the cross, through faith, we have a life exchange. It's a life exchange. We trade our old life, the sinful nature for a new nature that is new and alive. Jesus destroyed the power of sin of our old nature. He really did that at the cross. I know that sometimes we don't believe it, but he really did. In Colossians, it says this, if it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. Going under the water was the burial of your old life. Coming up out, it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean. The old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants, all of them in the universe, of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. You see, our desires, our passions, our appetites and lusts don't have absolute power over us any longer. They don't if Christ is living within you. We don't have to bow down to these idols any longer if we've made that one-time choice of making Jesus Lord and exchanging our deadness for His living Spirit. We've been given a new nature. A new nature. Yes, yes, we still have the same brains, the minds. We still have the same flesh that has been trained in the old ways. But the new life and the new nature is in us. And it gives us the ability to choose what we couldn't choose before. To put off the old life and its desires like a filthy set of clothes. There is a new wardrobe that God has picked out for us. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. But this new clothing isn't something you have to conjure up. It isn't something that you've got to work up and make happen. Everything we're, to, we're told to put on, this new clothing, is provided by God and His Spirit. 
putting off the old and putting on the new is a daily choice which was made possible by your one-time choice of that life exchange with Jesus. Jesus Christ living in you and through you, enabling you to do and make choices that you were not able to do before. That's my uh, cue. God's telling me to shut up. I'm going to wrap this up. So who rules? Who rules, folks, from the throne of your heart? Jesus or idolatrous desires? Have your desires worn you out and left you empty? Do you desire the fullness of Christ and the happiness that is found in Him alone? Are you still enslaved and powerless before your own desires? If your desires, passions, and appetites are ruling over you, then you have to get still and ask yourself and ask God to distinguish two things that can be going on in your life. Two things could be going on here, folks. The scenario one. Scenario one is that you have made that life exchange with Jesus. You died with Him and were given His new life. But you've been lazy or you've been deceived. You've been lazy or you've been deceived. You've been lazy in putting to death on a daily basis your remnants of that earthly nature, the way your mind has been trained, the way your flesh has been trained. And you've been, or you've been deceived and you've shaped a desire, a desire into idol, and you're worshiping it instead of the Lord. You need to remove the idol and worship Jesus as Lord. You need to ask the Lord to help you take off the old remnants and put on the new clothing that He provides not that you conjure up. Scenario two is this. If your appetites and desires are still ruling, ruling over you, it could be that you have never surrendered your dead life and given yourself to Jesus as Lord, allowing Him to remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart that is pounding with this Spirit, alive and responsive to every impulse of God. No longer a slave to the old earthly nature. No longer. None of us have to be. You find yourself in scenario two. You've never made that life exchange. You need to confess your sin to God. These desires that become idols, these appetites and desires that have taken the place of worship. You need to confess your sin to God. Confess that Jesus is Lord, that confession that the first Christians made. And you need to invite Him to rule your life. It's that, or you got to stop being lazy and deceived. Take off the old, put on the new. The next few moments, Nate and the guys are going to be leading us in worship. It's going to be a time for us to respond to this message. And so right up here, it's a perfect place. It's where the children come up and they're here every Sunday doing their crafts, working with their hands. And I can't think of a better place is to get on your knees right beside a child and say, Lord, I, I just need to start all over and be like a little child. I'm not an expert at anything. I'm just an expert at sinning. God, teach me. Show me how to live because I don't. I've screwed it all up. Or I've never allowed you, Lord, to come into my life. Please, I need to start over. I need to be born again.